Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 22nd of September 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Garrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. Uh, well, Boris is in the United States. He went and he met uh, Kamala Harris. Uh, he seemed to meet Kamala before he met uh, Biden. But anyway, uh, what was he talking about? The AUKUS, of course, this new defence alliance. Uh, he was talking about uh, the fact that the UK-US relationship remains unrivaled in its scale and steadfastness. And he said thank you very much to Biden for the US military leadership during the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which was all very strange because I thought we hated them for that. But anyway, he then met Biden. Uh, there they are together. Uh, and uh, I think they look much better that way, Brian. Well, it's just the masks. They're wearing the black masks. One minute people are in masks, the next minute they're not in masks. But when it's a photo shoot, we have to be in the black masks. Yeah, absolutely. So they were talking about uh, AUKUS, of course, uh, COP26. Uh, and then, uh, well, he met some other people as well. So uh, uh, Korean uh, Premier Moon here and uh, uh, who's that? Oh, Jeff Bezos. For some reason, they were meeting Jeff Bezos. Uh, what were they talking about? COP26, of course, uh, and his LEAF coalition and Bezos Earth Fund's commitment to give $1 billion to protect forests and remove carbon from the air. Now, I'm not entirely sure how removing carbon from the air protects forests when trees breathe carbon dioxide. But anyway, that's what they said. Uh, and, uh, and he met some other people as well. Uh, but Boris uh, put out a little bit of video um, and I'm sorry, I'm just going to apologize in advance to everybody for this one, uh, well, 37 second clip. Uh, just have a listen to this and listen carefully. And I'll explain why you need to listen carefully in a second. We haven't got much time left, only about 40 days until the COP26 summit. And I'm here at the UN in New York to tell world leaders that they must be ambitious in their targets to cut CO2 emissions. The world is looking at them. The developing world is counting on them. Future generations utterly depend on them. We must get it right. History will judge us, and we can't let them down. Right, so it was this bit at the end that sort of grabbed me because history, and it's a bit of English grammar here, David. I'm going to welcome you to the program with this because he finished off by saying history will judge us and we can't let them down. But in the previous uh, section, he was talking about uh, uh, them being world leaders, but history will judge us and we can't let world leaders die. That doesn't make sense. So who is the them uh, that he's talking about? Uh, it's all very strange. So, um, David, I'm interested in your thoughts on this. Uh, Sorry. First, I thought he'd really up the ante because he said, well, there's not much time left. We've only got 40 days. I mean, we've, <laughs> yes. had, we've had some global warming alarmism before, but 40 days to the end of the world. I mean, that's that's really uh, that's really out there. But apparently uh, he didn't quite mean that. It was a it was a badly worded speech all around. But the one thing that came across is all of this. We're going to protect the forest. We're going to protect. We're going to essentially stop development in the third world. So if you're in a poor country, it's going to stay poor because there, there won't be any development. And, and remember the, the Club of Rome concluded back in the 70s, the real enemy is humanity itself. Uh, and that's what this is all about. Okay. And just to, to end this segment briefly, uh, somebody else was there as well. If you look carefully, you might spot her. On the right-hand side there is Liz Truss, 
Uh, and uh, of course, it puts a massive uh, sense of amusement, or it is a massive sense of amusement to me that uh, Liz Truss is actually the foreign secretary. Um, and uh, well, she had this to say because they're, they, they are, have decided to hold a P5 meeting of foreign ministers in the Security Council. That's Britain, France, the United States, Russia, and China. Uh, and uh, the P5 have clear and shared interests in maintaining, st in maintaining stability in volatile regions to prevent terrorism and keep our citizens safe, she said. But anyway, they're going to have this P5 meeting. Russia and China are going to laugh at them all. Uh, but what is your view on her being foreign secretary? I mean, what does it matter these days who's actually holding the post? I mean, none of them have the intellect to make an impact. I, and it would appear that none of them have um, the authority either. Um, it's maybe more interesting who's who's running the cabinet office, but who's who's foreign secretary? It's window dressing. Can I, can I just add to this that, of course, Boris was, I think, very unsettled because the American media had pinned him down on how many children do you have, Boris? And I think he came up with a total of six, although there was a, there was a possibility there were a few more lurking around, I believe. Um, but um, clearly uh, the uh, pressure of that may have just destabilised some of these talks, Mike, I think. Uh, it could well be. Um, well, look, let's uh, come on to some more serious issues. And David, uh, the question of the economy and the potential collapse uh, well, the collapse seems to get closer every day. We're seeing that with gas prices, we'll come on to that in a second, and CO2, which we'll come on to in a second. Uh, but uh, Evergrande, uh, this is Zero Hedge covering this, but uh, I haven't seen too much coverage in the British press, but maybe that maybe I've just missed it. Evergrande misses debt payments due Monday as world's richest banker says China's Lehman moment has arrived. But of course, it's not really China's Lehman moment, is it? Because it, it's mostly Western companies that are invested in this nonsense. Well, I, I'm not sure that that's quite right. Um, but Evergrande is a huge uh, developer property company in, in China. Um, and the reason, Mike, that you haven't maybe heard too much about this from the Western media is the Western media have been reporting on it. But their only main line is, don't you worry your pretty head. It's all going to be fine. It's not another Lehman moment, honest. Um, the, the losses are, are, are curtailed and contained. Um, Zero Hedge is quoting people who are not quite so sanguine about the whole thing. Um, so they've missed a payment of $300 million billion on dollars. Monday, billion uh, an interest dollars. payment. No, billion, no. billion is its debt pile. Billion is its total debt. Right. It, it was the interest. It was $300 million in interest it missed. Um, which is still rather a lot of money. And of course, the banks to whom that money was owed are now themselves destabilized by the sheer volume of the, 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 the uh, unsustainable uh, and uncertain debt. Um, so uh, Zero Hedge here is commenting on Wall Street analysts. They're churning out commentary um, saying that the, the troubles in, in Evergrande pose a threat to the Chinese economy, uh, but it doesn't represent a Lehman moment. Uh, and they then quote here the, the Britain's own Financial Times uh, at length. Uh, and it assures us that China's situation is very, is very different. Um, and it, it's very unlikely. The lesson for Lehman was that moral hazards need to take a back seat to systemic um, <laughs> risk, they conclude. So the, the, the Times waffles on about how it's not going to be a Lehman moment and then basically says, but for the Lehman moment, 
we've just got to bail them out. Never mind the moral hazards, never mind that we're bailing out the losers, never mind that we're taxing uh, our, our population and our children to pay for the bankers or the property developers' mistakes. Um, you just have to. You've just got to hold your nose and do it. And this is the this is the viewpoint in the West. Whether it's the viewpoint in China, I suspect we will very shortly find out. Um, from closer to China, here we see uh, one of India's largest, the uh, head of one of a founder of um, one of India India's largest lending banks, uh, uh, the Mahindra Bank. He says Evergrande seems like China's Lehman moment. Um, the Indian government uh, acted swiftly, uh, provided calm to financial markets. Governments appointed board estimates, 61% um, uh, recovery, and Evergrande bonds are trading at 25 cents to the dollar. So that's not very great. Um, next slide here shows, uh, this is part of the analysis of this problem by Yahoo Finance. And they are talking about the vast amount of debt all over the world. Every country, every sector seems to be mired in debt. And to illustrate this, uh, they've got a graph of how much debt is held by the public. So this is the public, globally, exposure to financial risk. Um, and it used to be very modest. I mean, up to 1980, you think of the 80s as, you know, the Filofax generation and very aggressive, but really it was relatively modest. And it's actually since the financial crisis that it's gone stratospheric. Um, so we're now looking at, um, uh, what's that, 21 uh, trillion US dollars. Uh, so a very a very substantial amount of debt held held by the public. So this may affect if we start to see a collapse, a Lehman style collapse across uh, financial markets. This will affect a great many people very fundamentally. Um, the Times did report on the Evergrande situation. A nice illustration here. This is one of their developments. So you can see the scale of it. Um, it's it's a it's a vast high rise development. Um, on, an, on an artificial island, um, and obviously this is just one of many. Um, so they, they, they say that essentially this is a, a, a company not really known to very many British investors, um, uh, but it, it claims to have built homes for 12 million people at a market cap of $4 billion, but, the, uh, but earlier this year it was worth closer to $30 billion. Um, so it, it reports Asian banks are taking a hit, um, and uh, it, it concludes there is never only one reason why markets go into the red. This week, central bankers at the US Federal Reserve and Bank of England will meet to discuss when they should start to withdraw some of the support brought in during the pandemic, which helped fuel markets to record highs. So they're the recognizing that the money printing the government money printing has been what's lifted the market up. And, and the, the question is, will the government, will the Bank of England ever take this away? Will they ever remove the crack pipe? Because the high can just be continued, it seems, by endless money printing. Or will at some point, will there become a, a, a reckoning? Now, those who follow Austrian economics says, yes, there will be a reckoning, there will be a hangover, there will be a crash. To, on the far side of this, boom, there will be a bust. The government's 
the central banks across the world are ever more coordinated in making sure that will not happen. So we have a battle between these financial institutions and the governments that back them and economic reality. I know which side my money's on. Uh, indeed, but even if they do manage to keep things going, David, to some degree, that doesn't mean that there isn't going to be uh, an impact on on uh, the general public or everybody in some, to some degree, because, of course, even if they manage to keep things going, there's always some kind of contagion which uh, affects other people's lives. And, uh, well, here's Kwasi Kwarteng, uh, the business secretary, talking about the situation with gas prices. Uh, and he's saying the recent increase in wholesale global gas prices continue to be a cause of concern for consumers, businesses and energy suppliers across the country. I think it's more than a, going to be more than a cause of concern uh, as the uh, price rises hit on the 1st of October and then more price rises in April. Uh, but uh, the government now has taken emergency action uh, to protect uh, CO2 producers, or at least one of them, as we'll see in a second. But he went on to say, uh, we want to be clear that this is not an issue of supply. The United Kingdom benefits from having a diverse range of gas supply sources with capacity that can, be, that can more than meet demand. Uh, he didn't say what it was, though. He said it's not an issue with supply, but he didn't explain what it was. In the event an energy supplier fails, we're committed that customers face the least amount of disruption possible. Uh, central to any steps is our clear and agreed position that the energy price cap will remain in place. Well, the energy price cap is remaining in place, but it's, it has been raised, which is why the uh, gas companies are, and electricity companies are raising the prices of those commodities for consumers in October. And it's why they're going to raise them again in April, because it's likely to be the energy price cap is likely to be uh, uh, raised again in April. Um, but uh, the question is, how does this affect CO2? Well, the gas prices, uh, gas is used to produce CO2 for food production and other purposes. And we reported, I think it was back in uh, uh, May or so, uh, was this May? I think it was uh, chicken prices uh, under pressure from July. carbon. July. July, all oh, right, okay. Chicken prices under pressure from carbon dioxide crisis. There's another one in the Telegraph. Barbecue squeeze as CO2 shortages heat me uh, hit meat supplies. CO2 shortage could happen again, said food manufacturer. Well, it didn't, it never actually disappeared. There was never a, rela a, 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 a relaxation to the problem in the last couple of months. Uh, the gas world saying UK CO2 shortage shows signs of easing within weeks. No, it didn't happen. That was in August. Uh, and uh, poultry sector warns of new CO2 prices with supplies on, knife, on a knife edge. Well, it turns out that 60% of the UK CO2 Production comes from one company, and it's this one, CF, uh, and they're all about growing together as CF focuses on our people, our purpose, and our infrastructure towards creating a cleaner future. We are refreshing our brand values and objectives. You'll notice that some values, sorry, some visual changes to the brand, but your favorite products are staying the same. So that's excellent news, but they produce 60% uh, of our CO2 in the UK, uh, except when they don't, because they announced on the 15th of September that CF Industries Holdings Inc., a US company, uh, announced the halt of operations at UK facilities. So CO2 uh, production stopped. And as a result, the government has effectively stepped in to bail this company out. Now, they, they said that they were not going to step in to bail out smaller uh, energy re retail companies that are being stuffed by the price of uh, wholesale energy at the moment. But they are going to bail out this big US organization um, and so let's bring, bring uh, Quasi back on 
uh, screen again. Uh, this agreement will ensure that the many critical industries that rely on a stable supply of CO2 have the resource they require to avoid disruption. So they're calling this a, a short-term intervention. Uh, and basically, they're saying that the agreement will ensure the many that sorry the many critical industries that rely on CO2 have resources they require. Uh, the quick and decisive action we've taken to resolve the issue shows the seriousness with which they've approached it. Uh, and so they're going to provide this company basically the, the, the running capital, David, that they need uh, to get through the next several weeks. Uh, and, uh, well, it, it can't be described as anything other than a bailout. Yes, and it's, it's odd. I mean, leaving aside the deep deeply funny situation that we've got a shortage of CO2, right? And that, that just tickles me very deeply. Um, and the fact that we're talking about price caps on gas uh, prices, price caps don't work. Uh, price ceilings don't work. If the, if the uh, market value ends up above um, uh, the, the price ceiling you set and you maintain the price ceiling, what you get is shortages. And in energy terms, that means blackouts. So uh, watch for that one. And, and in terms of uh, this company not being able to make ends meet, CO2 prices have gone up 500%. How, how, how can they not be making money? How can they not be surviving on that? It seems very strange. I wonder if there's more uh, to that story. Can I just ask the question then, is this, uh, is this perhaps deliberate policy to suppress the CO2 in order to suppress the eating of meat and help usher in the green agenda? I Mike? think that is very much what's on the, on the cards there, Brian. And uh, certainly uh, that's what, one of the things we're discussing in New York at the moment in preparation for COP26. Uh, but uh, Rishi uh, is very excited at the moment. Uh, because green finance is vital in helping us tackle the environmental challenges we face. Uh, and the launch of our first green bond is a signal that the UK continues to be a world leader in this area. So, David, you will be mighty impressed to know that uh, the UK government issued its first green bonds yesterday and they got £10 billion worth of finance uh, to pump into Green New Deal projects. Uh, and they're going to do a second uh, uh, issuance of green bonds later in the year where they're expecting another five or 10 billion. So they're very excited about it. This is very great. It's very good. I, I'm, I'm very interested to see how they manage to uh, know what to invest in since price signals are, are no longer working uh, because we're investing in things because of political imperatives and fake science not because uh, they stack up economically. Um, that seems to me to be a way of losing a great deal of money, but uh, maybe I'm just old-fashioned. Uh, nostalgic, I think, is the word that, uh, that some would, uh, would use, but uh, you need to have watched previous UK column news uh, perhaps to understand what we mean by that. But anyway, let's uh, move on. If you like what the UK column does and you'd like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options uh, to help us out there, please do share our uh, material you find on the various platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, still somehow. don't know quite how we're still there, but anyway, we are for the meantime. Brand YouTube, Rumble, BitChute, and Odyssey. Although I should say somebody in the chat box said that the Facebook stream isn't working today, so maybe I'm already out of date on that one. Uh, just a quick reminder that uh, we have put up uh, uh, our vouchers for Christmas presents. Uh, if anybody wants to grab uh, one of those to give as a gift at Christmas, 
Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll have more to talk about on this issue in the not too distant future. Indeed. Well, if we've got madness in the uh, economic uh, system, let's jump into the subject of health. And uh, the BBC getting its underwear slightly tangled, I think, in this one, because they don't really know where to go. But look at the headline, over-prescribing of medicines must stop, says the government. So this is in a country being rammed full of vaccines, which is clearly medication, but over-prescribing of medicines must stop. Many patients are being prescribed unnecessary and even harmful treatments. Can you imagine such a thing happening in the UK, Mike? But this must be fake news because for, <laughs> you don't need a prescription for a vaccine, but you do, do need a prescription for the types of drugs that you get from your GP and nobody can get to see their GP. So how can this be? Well, we're going to explore this whole scenario. So here we are. The review in England suggests a tenth of items dispensed by primary care inappropriate should be changed. 15% of people take five or more medicines a day. Some are to deal with the side effects of others. Surely there can't be side effects from medication. Couldn't be. Uh, the government is appointing a prescribing czar to help with the issue and stop waste. So um, that is clearly going to solve the uh, whole problem. Now, this uh, gentleman's quoted in the article, Professor Martin Marshall. He's chair of the Royal College of GPs. He says that GPs will only ever prescribe medication to patients in conversation with them. And after a frank discussion about the risks and benefits of the treatment and when alternative options have been explored, have you met anybody in the last few years, Mike, who has that story to tell about their GPs? No. Anybody at all who's been told the risks? Well, what risks have we always been particularly interested in? Of course, it's the risks of vaccination. So we just put these words in Professor Martin Marshall's uh, mouth, except he's uh, for vaccinations where we almost never talk about the real risks of vaccine adverse reactions. And of course, we get paid for the jabs. So now we're getting a clue for why there is absolute mayhem in the GP surgeries, because we can see some of it at the top. So this is the gentleman, chair of the Royal Corps of... Uh, of um, General practitioners. Thank you. Yes, East London GP, UCL academic, passionate about general practice and doing outdoor things. Well, a bit of a shame we're locked down then. Uh, so we've got this. You need to be pretty thick skinned to be a GP, but these almost daily attacks on our profession, professionalism, commitment, and integrity are demoralizing and wear you down. So there's puzzlement here as to why people should actually uh, be getting at their GPs at the moment, but it's difficult to get at a GP because you literally can't get yeah, to well, them mm. in order to discuss anything. Uh, but he did post up this video of um, him having a discussion with Jeremy Hunt uh, on the subject of why people are finding it hard to get face-to-face -face GP appointments. So let's uh, listen in to this little clip. Basic charges, as you know, people say, yeah. I want to see my GP face to face and I'm not allowed to. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so we know the figures, about 80% of general practice was conducted face to face prior to the pandemic. At the height of the first wave, that was down to 10%. Now it's around about 56% of consultations are face to face. What we've learned from the pandemic is we can do more in general practice remotely than we thought we could. And that's a, that's a positive bit of learning. There's a lot of stuff that can be done without having to examine someone or be in the same room. Having said that, face-to-face -face, um, uh, contact is a really important part of dealing with particularly more complex problems. So there's kind of there's three categories of patients. If, if, if I may finish, there's there's people who 
um, like and get real benefit from remote care. There's patients who absolutely need to have face-to-face -face contact in order to get the high quality care to pick up the right diagnosis, not just examining, but, but picking up soft signs. And then there's a, a large group of people in the middle who would like to have face-to-face -face care, but general practice currently doesn't have the capacity to deliver it. And that's the bit which is the real problem for patients and for general practice. Just so people understand, do you have a right as an NHS patient <coughs> to say, I want to sit in front of my GP? Well, people are saying that, that patients should have a right. It, it, there's no point in having a right if it's undeliverable, and it is essentially undeliverable at the moment because of the workload pressures. So That's GPs right. try to meet the preferences of patients. But if there's a... And ideally, what you want is a shared decision-making between a GP and a patient to decide at triage whether face-to-face -face is necessary or not. Just, but, sorry, but just explain you, that the bit I think that's difficult is two years ago... I mean, I, we understand general practice under a lot of pressure, but it was under pressure two years ago and before the pandemic, but people could actually get in front of their GP when they wanted to, um, usually relatively quickly. Um, what, what has changed now that means that the profession can't offer that service to some people who want it? The two things have changed. First of all, the workload has gone up um, increasingly in that period of time and indeed over the last decade. And the second thing, and I think really importantly, the pandemic isn't over. We'd like to think it is. It isn't over. It might be over for pubs and nightclubs. It's not over for health services. It's really important that if you um, run a health service, whether it be in general practice or in hospitals, that you protect vulnerable patients. And the um, uh, prevalence still around about 1 in 70, 1 in 80 patients in this country have got COVID. So the idea of having somebody who is fit and healthy but shedding the virus sitting next to someone who's vulnerable in a waiting room is just not something that's acceptable. Well, I'm going to suggest we, we could have a whole uh, two-hour discussion on what that man actually said. But the first thing he said, of course, was that actually never mind the fact that people have been dying because they haven't got in to see their GPs and ultimately go through an NHS procedure for the treatment they need. Uh, GPs have apparently learnt. They've, they've started to realise they can do more remotely. But uh, where is the evidence that anything positive has been achieved from remote working? But what this is about in the background is a change of the whole NHS policy. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but there we are. He's, he said the AI is coming in. He doesn't mention the fact that GP surgeries are just not operating. They're not taking people through the door. But this is apparently all the fault of COVID still. Still, yes. Uh, I mean, just as a, as a, a passing comment, this is uh, today's Metro. Uh, 673 calls to speak to my GP surgery. Well, that was somebody who couldn't get through and just was hitting the redial button over and over again. It took them about 45 minutes or something to get through. And then we're told, well, you, we don't have any appointments, so you better call back tomorrow. Uh, and uh, this article really making the point that this is happening to multiple people, uh, hundreds of calls to try to get through to a GP surgery in England, at least. Uh, I'm told that uh, in Northern Ireland, it's not quite as bad as that. So uh, we're seeing different scenarios in different parts of the of of uh, the UK and perhaps within different uh, parts of each of the, the four nations, as they're called these days. Yeah. Uh, but nonetheless, people are dying as a result of this. Yes, and this this man doesn't seem to understand the reality of what's going on. So, who's driving policy? Well, if we come back to Mr. Marshall. Um, the Royal College of GPs, he tweeted this one out, um, talking about members of the Inequalities in Healthcare Alliance, a coalition led by the Royal College uh, Physicians. 
Uh, and uh, I thought it'd be interesting to have a look and see who the people are that are apparently the ones lobbying government to make policy, because clearly the public are of no interest to the government's healthcare policies at all. So uh, this is inequalities in healthcare, which you can find if you go to the Royal College of Physicians uh, website. And uh, if you go to the right line, you can actually call up who's involved, uh, should come, here we are. So in the center of this, you can see, view the list of members of the uh, Inequalities in Healthcare Alliance. Uh, that's it there. I encourage people to go and look at it from themselves. The only way I could do this is by a short video. So let's just press the button. Who are these people and how did they get in this position of power that while the public cannot get their message across the government, these people can. Uh, let's just watch it scroll through. And if you can't read it, I'm going to encourage you to go to that website to see it for yourself. But these are the people deciding on health policy in UK. But if you're the people, you're the user, you're the people paying for this out of your taxes, uh, the government is simply not interested in talking to you. So I think this is quite extraordinary. Uh, we're just about at the end of the list now. Young Lives Consortium, Voluntary Health Scotland's in there, David. So you'll be pleased to know the voice of the Scottish people is being covered uh, within this tremendous coalition. Well, that's not always being covered in Scotland within this, uh, because uh, the army is now covering Scotland. Uh, coming to Scotland soon is uh, more military, uh, because uh, the UK government has approved the support through the military assistance to the civil authority process. Uh, following the request from the Scotland office, working with the Scottish government, the Ministry of Defence uh, will provide 114 people to augment ambulance drivers and a further 111 personnel who will operate mobile testing units, uh, which the military previously supported in 2020. So uh, what was Ben Wallace saying about that? He had a lot of really interesting things to say. Our armed forces are once again stepping up, demonstrating their versatility as we support the COVID-19 response across the UK. Uh, and uh, I'm just going to say before I ask for comment from David on this, uh, you know, this this normalization of the military uh, being involved with civilian authorities. I mean, OK, the military have been involved uh, in replacing fire services in the event of a, a national strike, for example, in the past. But this is becoming routine now. Uh, and uh, I just want to highlight this from the integrated uh, operating concept, which is part of the integrated defense review that, that was released at the end of last year, uh, where they said that the old distinction between foreign and domestic defense is increasingly irrelevant. When fake news appears to originate not abroad, but at home, it gains credibility and reach, stoking confusion, disagreement, division and doubt in our societies. And it went on to talk about uh, how uh, coming home doesn't necessarily feel safe for the military anymore. Uh, and so, David, to my mind, the normalization of military on the streets in support of, uh, on, well, in support of what, actually, because there isn't an emergency there to support, uh, then this becomes uh, risky if the military believes that they're amongst enemies. Well, and do you remember the, uh, the video that uh, we looked at uh, of a Black Watch homecoming in Perth? Um, or maybe uh, two years ago, and rather than the normal parade, they were doing a simulated combat patrol through the town. It was very creepy. Uh, it was very strange. The reaction of the people watching was clearly unsettled. 
and this was not what we expected at all for, for um, a regiment coming home to its its hometown. Um, so, uh, yes, there seems to be a lot of this um, promotion of the, the military being encouraged to view um, the British Isles as every bit as much a combat zone as anywhere else in the world and also view every aspect of life as part of this, this uh, long and low-level war um, and not simply uh, actual combat. Yes. Brian? Well, you can't say any more. I think it's it's absolutely getting the troops on the streets to make people used to the idea you're going to see more police, more paramilitary police and more troops. Um, and staying in uh, Scotland, David, then we have to think twice before we phone 999 because, I mean, the last thing we would want if we were needing emergency care is for an ambulance to turn up. Well, that's not a problem in Scotland, Mike. Um, this is the background to the army being called out. So it started off with this uh, this report by Humza Yusuf calling on people to, to think twice, calling on people to only go to A&E if it was critical. Critical means that you could die. So anything where you, um, not being medically qualified, judge that, yeah, you should live. Don't go to A&E. And then it was, don't phone the, the ambulance service because it can't take, it can't take the strain. Um, that lasted about a day uh, until the Herald reported um, a father of three died in Glasgow after waiting 40 hours for an ambulance to turn up. Um, and Mr. Gerard Brown, 65, his family said that they've been told that the delay cost the former engineer his life. Mr. Brown's GP, who repeatedly warned 999 call handlers that his status was critical, uh, branded the current crisis engulfing the ambulance service as third world medicine. So that's where we've got to there. So um, when that hit, uh, there was enough of a stushy, is the correct word, in the Scottish Parliament that Nicola Sturgeon stomped off to uh, our office, promising to do something about it and call the army in right away. So the BBC is reporting it here, military to be called in to help Scottish ambulance crews. Um, and Nicola Sturgeon told the Parliament, quote, I'll be going back to my office to finalise the detail of the request for military assistance so we can submit that as quickly as possible. So this was very much in response, not to a growing crisis, but to very bad press. So this is a government operating in the moment, very short term. It's all about what makes Nicola Sturgeon look good or look bad at First Minister's questions. That seems to be driving policy, not anything else. Um, now, the Telegraph here reports uh, more than 200 army personnel to be deployed to tackle Scottish ambulance crisis uh, and quotes uh, Mr. Wallace um, again. But he said, quite interestingly, a further 111 uh, military personnel will operate the mobile testing units, that's COVID testing units, freeing up ambulance staff who currently perform this role. So... We were taking a crisis-hit ambulance service. We were taking hundreds of frontline trained personnel away from driving the ambulances to pick up people who were critically ill and leaving people for 40 hours to die uh, in order to operate COVID testing centres. That, uh, I think, is a very interesting data point and shows exactly the quality of planning uh, that's underpinning our uh, managerial state. More on that later. Um, 
And uh, the Scotsman then uh, reported a little while ago, a few days ago, that Hamza Yusuf uh, was accused of not trusting his own rules after self-isolating over a positive COVID case. Now, what happened here is that there was a someone near government tested positive. Nicola Sturgeon got a notice that she had to self-isolate. So she self-isolated for about a day until she got a PCR test that said she was fine, so she came back to work. Humza never got notified because he wasn't close enough to this person, but he thought that he would self-isolate anyway. So he went home and he, he, didn't, he didn't attend meetings, just to be on the safe side, you understand. Um, so what do you do when you go home and you're not at work and you're having a, you're having a day off work? It's, there's not much to do around the house. Um, if you're Hamza, you go down into the local sports hall and play badminton with your mates. And that's what he did. Uh, it did not go well. Uh, the next slide will show you just how badly it went. And um, so here we see a tweet from Hamza, frustrated not to be in Parliament today. Not, not the day before, he was quite happy the day before not to be in Parliament, but today he's frustrated. Um, because he was playing badminton and, and he, he, he damaged his Achilles tendon. And there you see he's got crutches and he's in, he's in the plaster and, he, and he's smiling. You know, he's a brave lad. Um, so what do you do if you've got to get around Parliament, gentlemen? Because uh, it's, it's a big building uh, and you have uh, uh, crutches. These are too slow. For someone so important, whose time is so vital as Hamza, you need something more rapid. And Hamza found one. It's a thing, it's a, new, it's a new device to me. It's a knee scooter. Now, I've never seen or heard or, or knew of knee scooters before this, this incident, but here we have a knee scooter and Hamza got one of these. And there are some safety tips. Do not scoot at high speeds. Uh, slow down before making a turn. If moving downhill, be extra cautious and always keep your body balanced. These seem perfectly reasonable. Um, suggestions or precautions. The next video is deeply memorable. <laughs> still funny. I've watched that a few times. It's still funny. So Hamza's the scooter exploits. And did you see the minion behind him with the mask on carrying his crutches for him, running along behind to keep up? It, it, it said everything that's wrong about our government in one little image. Incompetence and arrogance in, in one unique form. It was quite spectacular. Um, so uh, the response to this unfortunate accident ha has been a good degree of snig sniggering, to be honest. Uh, here's Lawrence Fox making a comment. He says the ambulance will be with you within 40 hours, Hamza. That was uh, fair enough, but Hamza wasn't happy. There was lots of media, media comments about his fall, and Hamza wasn't happy. He, he tweeted out, all for me media scrutiny and never shy away from it. Just not sure there's a need or purpose to tweet out a video of me falling over while injured. If anyone else had fallen over whilst on crutches, a knee scooter, or in a wheelchair, wheelchair, would your first instinct be to film it and tweet it out? 
Okay, so here we see Holmes is feeling sorry for himself. It's, 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 a, it's a conspiracy against me. The, the press just don't like me. Um, and it was a, a, a gentleman on Scottish Twitter that pointed out that Hamza has some previous on this. Here he's celebrating uh, the moment when Douglas Ross, MP and now um, yeah, leader of the Scottish Conservatives uh, and, a, and a, a, a Football Association referee, uh, fell over whilst refereeing a football match. And Hamza was impatient to see the meme that would be generated from that. So it seems that some people falling over, as long as the Tories, um, that's okay. Uh, but uh, not Hamza. You're not allowed to laugh at your great leaders anymore, Brian. Um, I know it's a British tradition to laugh at their leaders, but uh, apparently it's banned now. You can't laugh. It's, it's hurtful. Um, David, I'm still trying to get my head around the whole story, the fact that, um, you know, we shouldn't put pressure on the NHS, but he goes off irresponsibly playing badminton. He chases that little shuttlecock around. He damages his leg. He can't go to Parliament to deal with the job. Uh, but then he takes up the NHS time. Um, I think there's a lot of questions to be asked here. But what we're really looking at is utter breakdown in, a, in our governing system. And I know you want to have a talk about that uh, separately for viewers at some stage. But uh, we're laughing at the whole scenario here. But we're actually dealing with utter breakdown of governance in Scotland. And we've got a similar model in UK. Let's stick on the NHS. And uh, this one was flagged up to me a couple of days ago, but it's Sir Simon Stevens speaking when he was still chief executive of NHS England. So this is back in January 2019. And he's talking about the NHS long term plan, which, of course, is something that very few of the UK public know anything about uh, what it contains and what's in store once this uh, plan unfolds. So let's have a listen to what he said. Thank you very much, David, and uh, Prime Minister, uh, Secretary of State, uh, my colleagues from across the NHS. Uh, one or two of you may have noticed that this past year, the NHS has been celebrating its 70th anniversary. But today is not about the 70th, it's about the 80th. How do we keep everything that's so great about our National Health Service? High quality care for everyone, at a service that the whole country unites behind. But how do we also relieve some of the immense pressure on our frontline staff, going the extra mile day in, day out for a million patients a day? And at the same time, how do we capitalize on the amazing medical advances that we know are in prospect? Even just last month, we reached the 100,000th genome sequenced on the NHS. The first child in Europe got NHS-funded breakthrough cancer care CAR-T therapy. So that's the challenge facing our health service. It's the challenge, frankly, facing most industrialized countries' health services. How do you future-proof for the decade ahead? And that's what today's long-term plan is all about. We're able to do it for three big reasons. First, because thanks to the uh, leadership of the uh, Prime Minister, we have secure funding for the National Health Service over the next five years. And second, because there's a big consensus across the country and across the health service about how the health service itself needs to change. Since July, we've been working with patients groups, with frontline staff, with senior doctors, nurses, other medical professionals to answer the question what these changes should look like. 
and I particularly want to thank the patients groups representing three and a half million people who've worked with us on this, uh, including Age UK, the British Heart Foundation, uh, the Stroke Association, Macmillan, Mind, Rethink, many others. So we've got funding certainty, we've got consensus about what needs to change, and the third big reason is because actually many of the changes that this plan sets out are already happening somewhere in the NHS, and now they need to happen everywhere across the NHS. So together, we think this is a plan that is realistic and practical and costed and detailed and phased and, yes, ambitious. Some of the improvements that patients will see will happen quite quickly. New genetic tests for children with cancer this year. New options to see your GP online. Radical reforms to avoid 30 million outpatient visits. Guaranteed support for older people at home in the community. Some of these changes are going to take a bit longer. Halving maternity-related deaths by 2025. And some are going to require staged action over the next 10 years. As extra staff come online, we seriously begin to tackle health inequalities in some of our most deprived communities. And, for example, we're able to increase the proportion of people getting an early cancer diagnosis where their survival prospects are greatest from a half now to three quarters in a decade's time. We estimate that the combined effects of these changes could save up to half a million lives as we see further gains in the big killers and disablers of the people of England. Heart attacks and strokes, cancer, lung problems, many other conditions. But it's also about addressing unmet need particularly in services such as learning disability services and autism, mental health services, services that for too long have been squeezed from the national debate and unsupported by the NHS. And all of this, of course, is only going to be possible thanks to the brilliant NHS staff. Uh, the fact is we are the uh, largest employer of skilled professionals in the world. We've got 1.3 million people who are day in, day out looking after friends, families, neighbours. So there you have it. And to be fair to him, of course, he was talking before COVID hit. Um, but we get a snapshot of this long-term plan with a whole load of subtleties in it. Uh, so, for example, he says that this is a plan that's been discussed and agreed with coalitions of uh, charities, Mike. You, you'd see him stressing the fact that they've discussed with... Um, with uh, charities and uh, bodies that represent some three and a half million patients, I think is what he said. Uh, so it's not the general public that's been consulted on these changes. It's these uh, bodies, just as we're seeing with the GPs. This is participatory democracy where rights are taken away from individuals and given to charities and NGOs and other similar bodies. So that's what's happening there. And then what did he talk about? Did he talk about getting people through operations, getting people through wards, uh, taking them uh, out of their problems, getting full treatment for them, making healthy again? No, the priority that he mentioned was into genomic sequencing. And that got a mention twice, including with children in relation to cancer. And we'll have a look at why he's talking about that in a minute. Um, but he's also saying that... Uh, 
this plan is already happening. So this is not something that's being announced following agreement. It's already there working in sectors of the NHS. And this is simply announcing it and making the thing visible. What is actually being done is the NHS is being collapsed. It's being changed into a new model. Um, so let's follow through. Who's his uh, pre um, successor? It's this lady, Amanda Pritchard. Uh, now, she hit the headlines very big as the first female head of NHS England. Um, her style is black, but almost every picture of her is she's wearing black for whatever reason. Uh, but uh, this is where she's got to pretty quickly. Don't risk your life for fear of overburdening the NHS. Uh, that's a bit similar to Humza, isn't it, it really? Is don't overburden us by coming to us if you're sick, because we don't want to know. She says thousands are at risk by delaying cancer checkups, uh, as a survey finds 60% worry about imposing on the system. Well, all the people I'm meeting at the moment aren't worried about imposing on the system. They're worried whether the system is going to treat them, which is something completely different. Uh, but if we go to our, her, our Twitter page, she suddenly become very big on this. The NHS has today, this is talking about the 13th of September, begun the world's largest trial of a new blood test that detects more than 50, 50 types of cancer before symptoms appear by finding cancer early we have the best chance of treating it and giving people the best possible chance of survival. So let's have a look at the little embedded film clip, uh, which is her speaking on this subject. Uh, that's Pritchard, sorry. That's, that's Pritchard, yes, yeah. right. So uh, from today, we'll be inviting people to come for blood tests in convenient locations like retail parks. And I would just say to anyone who receives a letter or receives an invitation, uh, please do take it up and become part of this world first trial. So we can't get into a hospital to actually be treated. We can't have normal tests in hospitals, but we now can go to a retail park in order to get these uh, new blood tests. Uh, what's going on? Well, have a look at this tweet from her. She says the NHS has a successful track record of leading the way on innovations in cancer diagnosis and treatment. And this quick and simple blood test could mark the beginning of a revolution in cancer detection and treatment here and in the world, so around the world. So this is all to do with uh, UK leading medical uh, technology. How did the public reply to this? Uh, well, it was fascinating to see what they said. The first one was this, people coming to the trial of Elizabeth Holmes. This is the Theranos trial. So this is a biotech company that was looking at this sort of um, test, um, which uh, the lady made billions, but now has suddenly become an enemy of the state and is facing a trial over hype about what she said she could do. So that was the first reply to Amanda. And then we had this, you'll find cancer earlier if reception staff's objective weren't to prevent patients seeing GPs and GPs didn't dismiss patients reporting cancer symptoms and saying stuff like probably an ulcer or a sore throat. So very down to earth response. And this sort of went on, this, this gentleman, if we take it at face value, Dr. Asif Kwasim said, early detection of cancer does not equate to saving lives. Not much good when your surgery phones you to delay your blood test for six weeks because of the shortage of sample bottles. And on it goes, more 
on the, the shortage of glass tubes. So people absolutely picking up on the reality. The NHS is about to start a large scale trial of COVID vaccines for children that have no long term safety data and very uh, questionable short term safety data. So this is starting to mix it with vaccines and the pharmaceuticals that we spoke about earlier. Uh, what is target? What is target chemical the blood test? Where is the evidence base? What happens to people with positive results? How specific is it? Sounds like a gimmick. So the public very, very astute in picking up what the uh, new chief executive is talking about. Uh, but here we are. This is the mirror NHS trialing what is now the holy grail of blood tests that can apparently spot 50 cancers before the symptoms appear. But once it's produced a result, what happens? Because there is no treatment in the NHS at the moment. And of course, we got wind of this some time ago. This is back February 2019. Could we soon be able to detect cancer in 10 minutes? Uh, this is part of the article. About seven years ago, researchers at the US DNA sequencing company Illumina started to notice something odd. They were looking at expectant mothers, and then they realized that in some cases, they were seeing signs of cancer in those uh, mothers-to-be. Uh, but as we go into this article, we get into it. In 2016, Illumina created Silicon Valley-based spin-off company Grail with uh, Aravan, Aravanis as chief scientific officer, backed more than, by more than $1.5 in funding, including money from Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates and Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, the very man sat with uh, Boris, Boris at yeah, the start of the news. Yeah. So what we've actually got here is a test which is going to point us where? Well, let's come on to it, because if we have a look at Grail in pursuit of innovation to solve healthcare's most important challenges, all very glossy. They're full of engineers, apparently, but it says they're working with the NHS in the Galeri study investigating the clinical and economic performance of the Galeri test in the uh, UK's NHS. Uh, the study will initially enrol 140,000 people aged 50 to 77 in the United Kingdom. Now, these are people who haven't got any signs of cancer, haven't got a history of cancer. Uh, they're going to be trialled to tell them that they've got cancer and presumably then to say, now you've got cancer, we can't do anything because the NHS is shut down. Uh, this is one of the big men in Grail, so it's uh, Harpal Kumar. Uh, he's the president of Grail Europe. Uh, but interestingly enough, he spent 15 years with Cancer Research UK. And that's one of the organisations that we've already seen is working behind the scenes in these sort of coalitions in order to form government policy. So, David, there's a revolving door going on here, just giving you 20 seconds uh, we don't know who is running the NHS at the moment. Is it the government or is it a behind the scenes control network with uh, who's uh, Bezos Amazon, isn't it? I think. Yes. Who's actually running the NHS? A lot of questions to be asked, I think. Uh, well, well, absolutely. And, and to, to what sense, what set of priorities? Because it's not, it's not the set of priorities um, of the patients, of the customers of the NHS. They, they don't really have a view. It's, it's centrally planned, it's centrally managed. Um, the, 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 the people um, are not listened to. Uh, 
on a number of levels. They're not listened to on a policy level, and often they're not listened to inside the, the doctor's surgery, as uh, those tweets were highlighting. Um, and that um, fundamental problem with the NHS, no one's addressing. Nobody is addressing at all. Well, the uh, interaction between the NHS and big profit-making pharma is very deep. Uh, uh, this is a quote from Sir, Sir Harpal Kumar here, President of Grail Europe. He said, we're delighted to partner with the NHS to support the NHS long-term plan for earlier cancer diagnosis. And he mentions the Gallery test uh, and how wonderful it is. Uh, but of course, at the moment, the NHS is not able to provide anything to deal with this. Uh, but the solution is around the corner because uh, what we now see is proposals that they're going to deal with cancer by vaccination. So here we've got the first patient dosed with BioNTech phase two trial of the mRNA cancer vaccine. So it seems that behind the scenes, the NHS database, as it were, just being used to absolutely drive more profit for the vaccine industry. But at the same time, we've got the government saying, well, the UK population are over-medicated and the side effects of much of that medication is very dangerous, except where it's a vaccine when the government refuses to talk about vaccine adverse effects. Uh, so one other area that the NHS is very keen to get involved in instead of actually treating patients, of course, is uh, advertising and PR because uh, that's what drives people's opinions of the NHS. Um, so here is Talent Talks. Uh, this is the UK's leading casting agency. Uh, and well, they have advertised a job coming up, which is an NHS uh, film shoot. Uh, people aged 18 to 80 for general roles. Uh, this is taking place on Saturday the 25th of September. It is paid. Um, so they are shooting for the NHS between Thursday the 23rd and Saturday the 25th of September and have a variety of requirements. So if you're wanting to take part in an NHS uh, PR exercise, um, then that's the place to go for that. But uh, um, that's much more important than uh, getting appointments to GPs. Image, spin, PR, hype, but not treating people who are sick, Mike, Indeed. is the priority. Now, last week uh, we mentioned this uh, petition, uh, Outlaw Discrimination Against Those Who Do Not Get a COVID-19 Vaccination, um, and that petition was closed. This is one of two petitions. Uh, this particular one uh, got 347,514 signatures out of the 100,000 required in order to get a parliamentary debate. So as I say, there was this and one other petition uh, which were being debated uh, on the 20th, uh, which is Monday afternoon. Um, and uh, so bar the Parliament debating this on the 20th. So let's have a look. Uh, David, um, I'm sure that you'll have seen this image for the first time. You'll be highly impressed with the number of members of Parliament who turned up to debate this petition. Uh, there you can see it. How many are there? One, two, three, four, five, six. Six of them. Um, and uh, the Minister of State was there to answer questions as well. Uh, it wasn't so much a debate as more a statement, a series of statements uh, explaining how the, each of these MPs thought that the government's vaccine rollout program was absolutely fantastic, uh, that they thought that the disinformation and misinformation that was out on the internet about vaccines was a disgrace. Um, and uh, really, they were looking for, they were very much urging people that if they had any doubts about vaccine, any hesitant, hesitancy at all about vaccines, that they should speak to their GPs about it. Well, that's a bit unfortunate because people can't speak to their GPs 
uh, at the moment. So there seems to be a complete lack of uh, any uh, awareness or any reality amongst this lot. But out of 650 MPs, six of six. them seem to have turned up for this debate. Uh, and as I say, it wasn't a debate because there was no counter argument here. Uh, these were all, this was, uh, you couldn't use a word other than echo chamber here, David, to describe uh, what was going on there. These people are a disgrace. That's, that's absolutely appalling. Right? 300,000 people asked for a debate. There's a, there's a million people marching through London. And, and our parliament, the mother of parliaments, just ignores it. Can't, have, has no interest. A few, a few token gestures to turn up and, and support the, the official state line. And that is all. Is that all it's for? It is. Any thoughts? Well, I was going to say, I just thought it disgraceful that 30% uh, uh, of, of those uh, people in that room were appeared to me breaching the COVID rules because there were two inside six feet of each other. I don't Shocking. know if you noticed that. So uh, the hypocrisy is at many levels. Indeed. Uh, well, here's some more hypocrisy because here's the Daily Mail and this was covered in other newspapers as well. Pretty Patel saying, I'll lock up the eco mob after yet more M25 madness. Home Secretary tells Mills she'll crack down. So this is a, a protest group uh, who have been stopping traffic on the M25, which is the main ring road uh, around London. Uh, it's extremely busy pretty much all of the time. Uh, and somehow uh, eco-terrorists, if we could, or whatever they are, managed to get the traffic stopped and they kept it stopped for quite some time in order to uh, advertise their particular issue. Um, and uh, well, fortunately though, the Telegraph and I think the Mail as well covered this uh, a few days ago, this was on the 16th of September, um, made the point that protesters had been allowed to walk in front of cars and block the M25 by police. The police seemed to be facilitating it. The Telegraph had an article, Watch Police Facilitate Insulate Britain's M25 Protest. So Pretty Patel is saying one thing while the police are doing another thing. So could this be staged? Is this, in fact, uh, government-supported, uh, even though Pretty Patel says one thing in the press? Um, well, if you want to know more about how this type of operation works, then once again, I'm just going to recommend that you get hold of the book by Joseph Boyd, The Road to Kill the Bill, uh, because what I believe is going on here is because the police uh, crime courts bill is coming, continuing its way through Parliament, and this particular bill uh, contains sections which are designed to prevent protest in the future, then protest which uh, might create uh, public angst or might cause people to think that they would be against that protest. These types of protests are being encouraged by the state, in my opinion. Uh, and uh, it looks very much like the police in this case were facilitating this kind of protest. Uh, but David, uh, this is about the legislation, I believe. Um, and uh, uh, it's about time that uh, people recognised how these types of operations work. Yes, it's, it's the old... Um... The Galian dialectic, it's, it's, it's prob, problem, reaction, solution. Oh, look, they've blocked the M25 again. Reaction is public anger. The solution is, well, we've got this bill going through. Just as well, just in the nick of time. Aren't we good? Go us. That seems to be the, the game that's being played. Yes. 
Uh, that's the game. We should remember, of course, that MPs can't actually think for themselves anymore. They variably can only talk on a particular subject if they've had the briefing document from the House of Commons Library. Thank you to the viewer who said, have we seen this? Because I hadn't. So it's the briefing paper on the UK vaccination policy. It's back from the 21st of January 2021. Encourage people to look at it online. There's a quite comprehensive content. But of course, one of the things that this does not contain is any in-depth analysis on risks of vaccines or adverse effects. So the dangers of vaccinations simply not discussed, but there is a very good history lesson on vaccines, um, probably good for a seven or eight or maybe nine year old. Uh, but this, of course, is the briefing sheet for the government. Uh, they do boast that in a little um, um, what do we call it? Uh, film clip, a cartoon is the word I'm looking for. Um, the details about how they operate as a library. It's very short. Let's have a look at it. I just want clear factual information on what's happening in the world. You can get the latest analysis of the most important topics coming from a resource that is entirely impartial, expertly researched and totally free. Why is it free? It belongs to you. It's the online research of the House of Commons Library. Now forget any library that you have ever seen. The Commons Library is actually made up of small teams of experts critically separate from the world of politics. Their job is to gather information from trusted sources and collate it into unprejudiced research and analysis. This research is then published for members of Parliament to help them do their jobs. And because of this, that information has to be top grade and it's there for you to read as well. Our experts specialise in a massive range of topics and come from lots of different backgrounds such as engineering, housing, medicine, climate science and transport. As well as these specialists, the library also has statisticians, economists, lawyers, scientists and doctors and they write reports on a multitude of subject areas close to all our hearts. Because they do all this work for all MPs of all parties, Library reports are always politically impartial. They have to be. Which means you can use them to get an in-depth understanding of subjects you're interested in and you can be confident that they've been rigorously fact-checked. So that's a uh, little cartoon. Remember that was for adults. You might have thought it was for children but actually of course, it was for us, it was for the wider public. And what did they stress? That this resource was for us. It was for MPs, but actually it was for us, the public. After all, we pay for it. But if we have a look at the report that they produced on vaccines, and of course, this is the same for all their report, they say something different. So let's have a little look about, uh, let's have a little look at what they say. Here's about the library. Um, and it says the same as the video, obviously, that they work for the MPs and their staff with impartial briefings, evidence based. And it's, it's totally <laughs> I, I, I can't go on. But this is the bit that made me laugh. It says, if you have any comments on our briefings, please email papers at parliament.uk. Authors are, are available to discuss the content of this briefing only with members and their staff. So the public pays for it. It says we own it. It says it is for us, but don't you dare try and talk to the author to ask them any questions. And if you think you're gonna go for them because they've got information wrong, well, of course, 
you're not going to get very far because there's a very fat disclaimer saying whatever mistake or error or fakeness they put in their briefing for our politicians, don't come running to us because you're not going to get us on any liability whatsoever. So this is the brain, child. This is the brain of most MPs, David. There's no question of this because we have so many letters sent to the UK column where people uh, show us a letter from their MP where the letter simply regurgitates a House of Commons briefing document. Quite pathetic. Have you any thoughts? Well, I love the reference to all of our experts who've had plenty of college um, and and spend a lot of time on these reports, only use trusted sources. Trusted sources comes up again. So that means um, if anyone in the world asks an awkward question uh, of, of authority, they instantly become uh, not a trusted source and therefore become excluded from any research or assembly of research that the House of, House of Commons Library uh, might might do. Therefore, all awkward questions are excluded uh, by definition. You have it in a nutshell. You've got it. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's uh, bring uh, Pretty Patel back on screen, the Home Secretary, of course, uh, because she had some very important information for us yesterday. Uh, she said that in March 2018, Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia were poisoned with a military-grade nerve agent of a type developed by Russia, commonly known as Novichok. Uh, on the 5th of September 2018, the Independent Director of Public Prosecutions announced that there was sufficient evidence to bring charges against two Russian nationals for conspiracy to murder Sergei Skripal, the attempted murder of Sergei Skripal, Yulia Skripal and Nick Bailey, uh, causing grievous bodily harm with intent to Yulia Skripal and Nick Bailey, and possession and use of a chemical weapon. Uh, the police can now evidence that Alexander Petrov and Ruslan Boroshov are aliases for Alexander Mishkin and Anatoly Chapega and both are members of the GRU. Uh, the CPS has now authorised charges against a third individual known as Sergei Fedotov. So we have a, now a third person involved in this grand conspiracy by the Russians. Uh, our government will be relentless in our pursuit of justice for the victims of these attacks and continue to do whatever is necessary to keep our people safe. Now I'm going to say uh, that we covered this extensively at the time and uh, have a look at the UK Column News archive on the website if you want to uh, find, just search for Skripal and you'll find uh, a host of the coverage at the time. But the types of narratives that we saw at the time, the type of story that the British public was expected to swallow uh, during the Skripal uh, story was very similar to what they subsequently were expected to swallow with Novichok. And of course, we've got to remind ourselves what the chief, uh, chief medical officer of the time, uh, Dame Sally Davies, said, because Novichok uh, is a, a terrible nerve agent, and if you get it on your clothes, it is undoubtedly lethal. So the best way to deal with it was through this advice. Uh, and she said, my advice for any individual, wash your clothes and wipe down your personal items, shoes and bags with cleansing or baby wipes before disposing of them in the usual way. And this is exactly the type of advice that we've seen from the chief medical officer in 2021, who's a different person, of course, uh, and all the SAGE uh, advisors uh, over, uh, over uh, uh, coronavirus, David. It is just, uh, people swallowed that at the time and they've continued to swallow nonsense from these people ever since, it seems to me. 
Well, this is the problem. Um, the, the same problem we've seen in the House of Commons Library, that uh, you don't have any critical thinking uh, being done. Um, the, the press, the mainstream press, by and large, are not doing it. Um, and sadly, our people have mostly lost the ability to simply laugh at these explanations. I think 20, 30, 40 years ago, maybe more, um, that's what they would have received, just derision, because the, the excuses are not credible, they're not rational. Um, but now it seems to be accepted because it's repeated so often on so much media, on so many news channels, it, it simply becomes the truth, even though it's, it's deeply irrational and makes no sense at all. Indeed. Okay, well, look, uh, it's, it's nearly a quarter past two, so uh, we're going to probably end with this one. Uh, this is the Daily Record, David, and the Stefan Sutherland case. Now, can you just uh, give us a brief uh, pressy of, of what this was about before we get into the detail of it? Well, I've, I've got a timeline coming up, and I'll take you quickly through that. But, but Stefan Sutherland was a young man. He disappeared one night in, in Caithness. He was... Um, uh, his body was found a few days later on a beach uh, just near his home. Um, there was immediately a lot of suspicion over what had happened, but the police didn't seem interested. The police were actually quite hostile towards people coming forward with evidence uh, and with concerns over what had befallen uh, Stefan. And uh, they concluded that it was, it was suicide and they went through various explanations of how this happened, none of which was rational or made any sense. And, and Stefan's family would not accept this and continued to campaign for many, many years uh, to have a reinvestigation. So two years ago, uh, Police Scotland announced that they would yield to this demand and they would have a thorough uh, and, and a root and branch reinvestigation of the whole thing, that they would go door to door and they'd leave no stone unturned. Uh, and now we have uh, the results of that investigation. So the Daily Record uh, reports, family convinced the son was murdered, was told there was no criminality by police. So the police have just said there's nothing to see here. So after a major reinvestigation, detectives and prosecutors confirmed in a meeting with Stefan's family that a, uh, that a spot of blood was found in the living room wall of a violent drug dealer, but insisted no evidence existed to justify charges. This is a violent drug dealer who had beaten Stefan up uh, a short while before this, um, uh, before his disappearance. Um, Crown, uh, Deputy Crown Agent Lindsay Miller uh, led a meeting with the Southern family in Inverness on September 7, eight years and a day after Stefan was last seen alive. Um, the, uh, in 2019, the Daily Record revealed blood stain the wall carried Stefan's DNA and the injuries to his body suggested he'd been brutally beaten and that witnesses reported the suspect had burned a carpet and sofa soon after Stefan va vanished. So there, there's lots of evidence that something was happening here. Um, Stefan's family believe the reinvestigation has placed too much emphasis on Facebook posts by Stefan where he talks about his mental health difficulties. Police Scotland also attended... Uh, as the family was talked through the document and was told a thorough investigation lasting almost two years ruled out criminality. Dad Sandy last night insisted there were still unanswered questions over Stefan's death. He said, I asked the senior investigating officer, Graham Mackey, when did Stefan die? Where did he die? How did he die? Why did he die? He just looked at me because they still don't know. So those are the level of, un of unanswered questions. 
Um, here we see Stephen's, uh, some of Stephen's family around his grave. Um, and um, the, the, the family continued, uh, he was making plans for the future that did not involve killing himself. He had no mental health problems and had never been treated for depression. Sandy said they spent two years investigating Stefan's Facebook posts instead of searching for evidence to establish how his blood ended up on the wall of a guy who had beaten him unconscious once before. From pages 6 to 19 of the document, they mentioned Stefan's Facebook posts and comments 31 times. Assistant Chief Constable Hawkins said Stefan's death was a tragedy for the family uh, and his friends and the close-knit Caithness community. Our sympathies remain with them all. I recognise that the years of campaigning by the Southern family who have rightly sought answers on a number of questions surrounding Stefan's death. The review found that many of these questions and concerns were based on unsubstantiated information being passed to them, which understandably caused significant grief and worry to the Sutherland family and the local community. A spokesperson for the Crown Office said Crown Council has instructed that there should be no proceedings in this case. So as far as Police Scotland and the Crown Office are concerned, it's closed. Uh, Marcello Mega here has the timeline of events. Marcello Mega is a journalist who's covered this extensively. Um, so uh, on the uh, 6th of September 2013, Stefan was last seen in the Shelligore Road in Lebster, um, and uh, his decomposed body was washed up and found in the high water mark at Ockhamster uh, on the 17th. Um, a post-mortem concluded that Stefan did not drown and there were injuries to his face and hands that his family believes would be consistent with a beating. Uh, Stephen's family learned from the community that, that he was seen going to the home of a drug dealer who beat him unconscious the previous year. In January 2014, the council house at Shelgo Road was vacated and police carried out a forensic search. Stephen's DNA was confirmed in a blood spot on the wall. In January 2014, a senior colleague of the pathologist who carried out the post-mortem reviews the findings and suggests drowning is a possibility, but cause of death remains head injury. Police continue to maintain the, the, their position that there are no suspicious circumstances. 2019, the Daily Record breaks the story about the family's quest for a thorough investigation. Um, and October 2019, following a series of revelations in their articles, the Police Scotland announced a review of the case by its major investigations team. And then today, they've said there's nothing to see here. Um, the John O'Groats Courier, who'd been a local newspaper, but oddly quiet on this major story, um, also report that uh, the, the family are shocked by the result. Uh, Corey's sister here, obviously we won't be giving up. We just don't believe there was no criminal activity. We are not the first family in the community to go through it, and I doubt we'll be the last, to be honest. And just to finish off here, uh, back in 2017, uh, we published um, Stephen Sutherland, The Unanswered Questions, uh, on the UK column. Uh, and uh, those questions are still unanswered to this day. Uh, I personally believe there was foul play. I do not believe the, um, the, the, the tale that's been spun to try and make it suicide. Um, and I think there's more than enough evidence to see some action. And uh, personally, my view is that there will be a reason that there's no action, uh, a reason which will be hidden from view. Okay, th thank you for that, David. Um, tragic case, and we, we can see across the country, whether it's Scotland or England, uh, Wales, Northern Ireland, cases where there does not seem to be a proper investigation into a crime. And of course, this is very serious. The public should be deeply concerned where the police seem to fail to do their basic job. 
um, as a matter of interest, it appears that locally uh, information that members of the public are trying to give to the local police about missing schoolgirl Jeanette Tate. This was a 13-year-old girl who disappeared back in August 1978. Uh, but that information apparently not being uh, received by the police, well, uh, doors closed is what we're hearing. So perhaps we'll be able to give more on that. But very strange when the police don't seem to want to do their basic job of investigating. Mm. Well, we're out of time. We're out of time. We'll leave it there on that very serious note. David, thank you very much for joining us. A big thank you to um, uh, all of our viewers and particularly uh, people watching in from overseas. We know some of you are in very remote, remote locations, uh, but you're managing to uh, get the wherewithal to tune in for the UK column uh, news broadcasts and a big thank you to all of you who are continuing to tell us that you are helping to keep you sane so that's a really big compliment for us so thank you very much for that uh, stay with us we'll be here for some extra if you're on the uk column uh live stream and uh, otherwise we'll be back 1 p.m as usual on friday yeah okay bye-bye bye-bye